0: So the first time that I viewed pornography, I was 12 years old and I'll never forget it. My neighbor, Corey, who lived across the street from me, was 14 and he came up to me and he said, Hey man, I got to show you something. And so we went into their house and we went into his dad's office where there was a desktop computer. And this was in the days of dial up internet. Anybody remember those days? And so he began to dial up the internet and 15 minutes later, Uh, He did a little quick Google search, and within a matter of minutes, there in front of my eyes was the Pamela Anderson, Tommy Lee sex video. And I remember thinking to myself, what do we have here? You know, I mean, I'd never in my life seen a naked woman up to that point. Um, And so this was a whole new experience for me. And I just remember that moment, a feeling coming over my body like I had never experienced And I did in that moment what I guess any non-regenerate 12-year-old would do. I said to my friend Corey, hey man, can you print off some pictures of naked women and send them home with me? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. And so he printed them out and I folded them up and I went and put them where nobody would find them, which was next to my Bible in my dresser drawer. And that was kind of my first experience. Uh, First, uh, I guess, viewing of pornography and really only experience up until a couple years later where my parents decided to purchase this ticking time bomb called a computer that they put in our house. And I soon learned that there was a thing you could do that when your parents leave, you could look at porn and clear the history and they would never know. And that was just kind of what life then began to be like for me in the 90s. And when I look back at that and I think about how easy it was for me to access porn as a teenager, I now shudder at how easy and accessible and common it is today. In fact, I was reading an article in the New York Times um, which is an article about pornography literacy curriculum that is now being designed for high school students. And in an, ex- an excerpt in this article, it said the following, for around two hours each week, for five weeks, the students, sophomores, juniors, and seniors can now take part in a porn literacy class, which aims to make students savvier, more critical consumers of porn by examining how gender, sexuality, aggression, consent, race, queer sex, relationships, and body images are portrayed in porn. So here's me, you have me in the 90s. I have to be very strategic, very sneaky, right? If I want to look at pornography as opposed to a now porn literacy class in 2019 that is being designed to help teenagers be savvier consumers of pornography. This is the world that we're living in. And I guess it should come as no surprise to us, um, according to the most recent statistic, porn has become a 97 billion, with a B, billion dollar industry receiving more monthly traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. And this is not just a, uh, a male issue. This is increasingly becoming a female issue. According to Psychology Today, uh, 98% of men and 73% of women have confessed to looking at pornographic images in the last six months. So this is a problem. And it's not just a problem out there. Like, that is a problem that is in here today. And what I would submit to you is it's actually eating Christians alive Look at whatever research you want. What you will discover is pornography literally rewires our brains. It changes our sexual taste, destroys marriage, devours people's hearts, produces a profound amount of shame, and actually robs us of the confidence that we need to navigate life. That is why whenever we turn to the Scripture, Scripture actually, when it talks about sexual immorality, which ironically enough, the word used for sexual morality in Scripture is the word porneia, which is where we get our English word from, pornography, from. When the scriptures talks about sexual immorality, it uses very, very strong language. For example, I will put this on the screen for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And again, it's also in your YouVersion app if you want to pull that up. But in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. And the word again that's used there is porneia. For all of the sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that those, or do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. Notice how, according to Paul, when it comes to sexual immorality or pornea, literally it strikes at the root of your entire being. It is an assault on, he says, your own body. And by body here, he doesn't just mean like your physical body, but the word that is used here means your entire being. Porn literally punishes your entire person. Therefore, that is why Paul says you need to flee from sexual immorality. Or in Ephesians 5, he says you should not even let a hint of sexual immorality enter into your life. Jesus uses very strong language himself in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. He says, You have heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery, so that's having sexual relations outside of marriage. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully or a man lustfully has already committed adultery with her or with him in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to burn in hell. So clearly God cares about your sexual purity. And because we live in a culture that I would say is anything but sexually pure, here's what I want to do in the rest of the time that we have together today. I want to spend time looking at Jesus and the story that he tells us about sexuality. And the reason that I want to do this is because, as you've heard us say before, in the words of the Hollywood screenwriter, Bobette Buster, we as humans are narrative creatures, meaning you cannot not make sense of your life apart from a story, apart from what neuroscientists call mental maps. And because Jesus knows this is true in Matthew chapter 19, which hopefully you're already there... When Jesus is confronted on this issue of divorce, he responds by telling a story. And he tells us a story about who God is and what he has done and how that shapes who we are and how we live. For example, look with me. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. It says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee, and he went to the region of Judea, to the other side of Jordan. Large crowds followed him there, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, just to give you a little context around this question, in Jesus' day, there were these super-religious guys known as the Pharisees, and within the Pharisees, there were two schools of thought. One school of thought was, if you want to have divorce, you have grounds for divorce if your wife is sexually unfaithful to you. The other school of thought was there was a growing group of people who said, actually, the women never have the right to divorce men. Men can actually divorce their wife pretty much anytime they do something that they don't like. So one example that they gave literally in their law is if your wife burns your food, you have the right to divorce her. Okay? Now, the Pharisees are starting to pick up on this idea that maybe King Jesus doesn't really like line up with that. And so they ask him a question, and there's not like a pure motive behind this. So they're doing this to test him, to try to trap him. They say, Jesus, is there, you know, is it okay for a woman to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Look at verse 4. Jesus responds, Haven't you read? That's a little sarcastic dig there, by the way. Of course they've read. That's all the Pharisees do, is read and memorize the scriptures. Haven't you read? Jesus replied. At the beginning, so here comes now Storyteller Jesus, and watch what he's going to do. To answer their question about divorce, he's going to tell a story. At the beginning, the Creator, okay, so apparently there's a God, who made them male and female, so apparently there's gender, and people are created uniquely. And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, so okay, I guess there's now family, and be united to his wife, not his boyfriend, not his girlfriend, not the person they found on Tinder they want to hook up with, And the two will become one flesh. Like, whoa, what in the world is that about? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, there's a ton in there, but notice for our purposes today, when the Pharisees ask Jesus, hey, is it okay or not okay for us to get divorced? Jesus doesn't just respond by saying yes or no. But he responds by telling a story. And why does Jesus do this? Because Jesus knows that every single human, including you, That we are a story-formed people, meaning the stories that you believe about your finances, about God, about sexuality, the stories you believe, for better or for worse, shape how you live. Therefore, in light of that, though this is a really tall order, here's what I want to do in the time we have left. I want to compare and contrast the secular story about sexuality with God's story about sexuality. I want to show how these line up with one another. And then here's the thing. After I share that, you're going to have the option today to choose which story do I want to step into? Which story do I want to believe? And you're going to believe one or the other, right? You can't not, right? Again, we're story form people. So that being said, here we go. Ready? Okay. One of you. That's fantastic. I'm with you. Okay. And the guy that said that's on staff, he gets paid to say that. So not encouraging. All right, here we go so first the secular story human beings what does the world tell us in light of human beings first that we are animals That we're basically nothing more than primates with time and chance on our side secondly when it comes to human nature what does the world say well basically we're all really good people with really good natural instincts and if we want to be happy we need to follow those instincts so if you're hungry what do you do you eat if you're thirsty you drink if you're horny what do you do you go and you just pleasure yourself or you find someone who will like mutually consent and you hook up, right? Like that's what the world will tell us. Third, when it comes to gender, the only difference between male and female is the plumbing. Four, when it comes to sex, well, sex is nothing more than play for grown ups. It's just a biological release. Five, when it comes to love, well, love is nothing more than a feeling. It's a desire. It's more like lust and love actually. And you can fall in, you can fall in love or you can fall out of love and you really have no control over it. Six, when it comes to dating, if you're lonely, horny, or need a self-esteem booster, find someone who can meet your needs in a course. You got to figure out if you're compatible. You got to test drive the product. So have sex as soon as possible, which by the way, is becoming easier and easier with dating apps like Tinder. Um, I was reading in the vanity fair this past week, which FYI is not a Christian publication. And there was an article called uh Tinder and the hookup culture. Let me just read a couple excerpts from this. With dating apps like Tinder, you're always sort of prowling. You can talk to two or three girls at the bar and pick the best one, or you can swipe a couple hundred people a day. The sample size is so much larger. It's setting up two or three Tinder dates a week, and chances are sleeping with all of them, so you could rack up 100 girls you slept with in a year. One guy says, I sort of play like I could be the boyfriend kind of guy in order to win them over, but then they start wanting me to care, and I just don't. They start out with, send me nudes, says Reese. Or they say something like, I'm looking for something quick within the next 10 to 20 minutes. Are you available? Okay, you're a mile away. Tell me your location. It's straight efficiency. One guy said, I hooked up with three girls thanks to the internet off of Tinder in the course of four nights, and I spent a total of $80 on three girls. Now, some of you I know are currently probably deleting your Tinder app from your phone right now as I'm talking. And so if that's you, just look back up at me for a second. Um... I don't share that with you to shame you or to condemn you, but I want you to understand something. You are believing a lie when it comes to dating that is being fed to you from the secular story, and it is a story that literally is destructive and dehumanizing. Literally, we are in our culture right now turning human beings into sex toys, into objects, because of the story that's being fed to us. Next, moving on from dating to marriage, well, what does the world tell us the purpose of marriage is? Well, happiness, of course. Like that's why we get married. And if you're happy, great. And if you're not, well, you just go and find someone else. There's plenty of fish in the sea. And then eight, divorce. What's the point of divorce? Well, it's an enlightened decision for two people who are no longer compatible or who fall out of love. You just end it. And yes, all the research says that this is very destructive in the life of kids. But at the end of the day, you've got to tell your kids, hey, you just be true to you. You just do what's right for you. Right? That's the message. Now, Listen, these are messages, if you stop and think about it, that you are being bombarded with every single day. And it's a destructive message. It's a message that you're hearing in class at school. You're seeing it in shows on Netflix or Amazon Prime. You're seeing it in articles on your news feed or a post on Facebook or even those throwaway comments that a coworker, co-worker or maybe even an MC member make. And it's very easy to look at all that and begin to believe that this is reality. But guys, please hear me. It's just a story. It is just somebody else's interpretation of how they think life works best. And typically people who buy into this story, they give them li- their lives to this formula. It's a formula of desire plus consent equals freedom that's what they believe. It's this idea of, hey, if I have a desire to hook up with this person or look at pornography, I mean, what's the big idea? It's just sex. Who are you to deny me of my desire? And as long as this person is willing to consent, why should I not be able to go and hook up with them? And if I can do that, then the belief is I will have freedom. To which I look at that and say, really? Really? Because from my experience as a pastor over the last 15 years, that has not at all been the case. In fact, by all accounts, though, as a society, we are more and more believing this lie that we should act on whatever desire we want. We are, every researcher will tell you this, becoming lonelier, more anxious, and more depressed than ever before. So the truth is, desire plus consent equals freedom sounds really good, but it's really consent or desire plus consent equals disillusionment. It's a lie. So the question is then, what is the better story? What is the true and better story that we're called to give our lives to? Well, I'm so glad that you asked. Okay, so here is God's story. And again, this is a tall order. I'll do the best I can to simplify this and give it to you fairly quickly. So first off, when it comes to God's story around sexuality, as humans, what does the Bible say? It says that we are made in the image of God. I was at the St. Louis Zoo a couple weeks ago, and we came to the little house that has monkeys in it and I was looking at the monkeys and I thought to myself, that's not me, right? It's not. I mean, like what the Bible says is actually, I am much more like God, the creator of the universe than I am like this animal. And what separates us from animals, you have to understand that it's not simply your IQ, but what makes us human is ironically enough, the immaterial stuff, It's the stuff you can't see under a microscope. It's what the Bible calls your soul. It's your will, which scientists still can't figure out. It's your volition, your desires and your passions, your emotional energy, your ability to love and hate and forgive and have compassion and mercy, right? It's all this stuff that is invisible, and yet everybody who's worth their weight will tell you it is all there. And why is it there? Because as humans, please hear me, you are not here by coincidence, You are here because you were created by God in his image to reflect his glory to the world. That's a story that we hear from the Bible. Second, when it comes to human nature, what does the Bible say? It says, though we're capable of good, the reality is because we live in a sinful world, we all have desires that are bent in the wrong direction. Which means, though you have value and worth as one created in God's image, you do not need to do everything that you think you need to do. You do not need to act on every single desire. Paul talks about this in Galatians 5, where he says that though as Christians you have the spirit, you still have the flesh, and the flesh will lead to death. Therefore, Paul says literally, and I quote, do not do whatever you want to do. As it says in Proverbs, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. Third, when it comes to gender, the Bible is clear there is male and there is female, and God has blessed both, which means it is good to be a man in a man's body. And it is good to be a woman in a woman's body. Men and women are absolutely, you need to hear this today, and we'll talk a lot more about this next week. We'll talk about marriage and the roles in marriage. Men and women are absolutely created equal in essence, but they are different in design. They are created uniquely with unique roles and responsibilities. And Christians will debate on how that plays itself out. But what all Christians will agree on is gender is not imaginary. It's a big part of what it means to be human. For when it comes to sex, sex is not just play for grown-ups, but it is something that happens at a soul level where when people have sex, literally two people become one flesh. There is an inner penetration, yes, physically, but also of two souls. And whenever this happens, the Bible says within the boundaries of marriage, it is good and it is beautiful and it is life-giving. But when it happens outside of marriage, it is absolutely destructive. And you've heard us talk about this before. Sex is like fire in this way. Fire is very good, But fire is also very powerful. And so if if fire is in the right boundary, say in the boundary of a fireplace, it can warm a house up. But if it moves beyond that, literally, it can burn a house down. That's the same way it is with sexuality. See, Christians actually don't have a lower view of sex in the world. We have a much higher, holier view of sex. And we say that the only way that you can have sex without it burning your life down is within the boundaries of marriage. That's a story we see in Scripture. Fifth, when it comes to love, love is far more than an emotion, according to the scripture. Love is a decision. It is a choice. In the words of John Mark Comer, love is a decision of the heart to delight in the other's soul and to will their good ahead of your own, no matter what the cost is to yourself. And we see this beautifully displayed for us at the cross of Jesus Christ. Six, when it comes to dating, this can actually be a little bit tricky. I don't know if you knew this, but the term dating did not actually even appear in print until 1914, and that is because marriages were basically arranged up until like the 18th or 19th century. And so there's no category for it in the Bible, but there absolutely are principles that I think inform how we are going to date if you decide to do that rather than having your parents arrange your marriage. Um, and so C.S. Lewis talked a lot about this. Um, and I think he summarized it well by talking about the four loves that we see in scripture. And he says, when you read the Bible, you'll see there are four types of love. There's eros, which is erotica. Uh, yeah, it's right there on the screen. There's storge, which is about excitement and wonder, philea, which is about friendship and agape, which is an other centered sacrificial love. And what Lewis says is this, is a lot of times in dating, we start with eros and we look and the first question we ask is, is before I date this person is, is he or she hot? Like would I want to have se- am I like sexually drawn to this person? And then if I am, then we move to storge. And that is, can you now give me the excitement and wonder and fun that I'm looking for? So a lot of these dating relationships, are just about fun. Doing a bunch of things that, whatever. So then if it's good sex, they're able to have a lot of fun, then maybe we'll look at Friendship. And then after friendship, if all the stars align and I'm where I need to be in my career and I've got enough money in my bank account and whatever else, then maybe we'll look and say, okay, now maybe I'll marry you and try to give my life to you. What C.S. Lewis argues is that when Jesus enters into the picture, that should actually be completely reversed when it comes to dating. So first, the very first question you should ask is, is this the kind of person that I could marry and give the rest of my life to? So for those of you who are dating, and we have a lot that I know are are singles. we got like six in my own missional community. Before you ever date anybody, the scripture is abundantly clear. You should not be an equally yoked. If you are a Christian, you don't date a non-Christian. You look at somebody and you say, is this the kind of person that I could give the rest of my life to? Are we actually aligned in our hearts with Christ? Secondly, here's the next step. You actually move to Friendship. You don't just move to sleeping with each other and, 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 and call an official, this is my boyfriend, this is my girlfriend. You actually become friends with them. Because let me tell you something, just because they look hot or just because they're a Christian doesn't mean you know anything about them. You don't know anything about them. And I'll say this, they're putting their best face forward for at least the first five or six months. They're not that great. I promise you. Okay? And so... This is where friendship enters into the picture. And this is where, let me encourage you, used to when people dated, they didn't isolate themselves from community. If there was a courtship, they would go and meet each other's families. They would be pulled into their church community. They would dive into their past with things like the Enneagram, which actually they probably didn't have the Enneagram then, or maybe they did, depending on the Adam's, it's been around since the Desert Fathers, whatever. But they begin to look at their family history and think about their addictions and all these different things they're carrying in together. They actually developed a deep relationship, a friendship with one another. And then at that point, they begin to say, hey, if we want excitement and wonder, the greatest way to do that is to make sure that we can partner together on the mission of God, to make sure that we are together, that you believe what God has put you on this earth to do. And I believe what God has put me on earth to do is something that we can do better when we're together. That's true adventure. That's excitement. And then after that, the last step is we will now consummate this marriage by having sex. And sex is just a way of us saying that we are now going to do with our bodies what we've already committed before God and man to do with our entire lives and the boundaries of marriage. Right? So that is a biblical view of dating. Seven, when it comes to marriage. Marriage is not simply a contract that you opt out of when things get hard or you're no longer happy or there's a better option at work. But love is a, or marriage is a covenant that you keep before God and others to be unto the other what you know you should be, even if they are not as they should be to you. And from the way I see it in the scripture, there are six reasons for why one gets married. Married, Here you go, and I, maybe this is on the version app. If it's not, take a picture of it. But one, if you're going to get married, I think one of the reasons you get married is because of friendship. In Genesis chapter 2, God comes to Adam and he says, it's not good for you to be alone. And so to help him with the ache of loneliness, he doesn't give him a dog or a cell phone or video games. He gives him a woman. Next, we see that marriage is for the purpose of partnership. God says to Adam, I have given you a job to do, right? To to subdue the land and have dominion over it, to take my creation somewhere. But you cannot do this by yourself. So I'm going to create a helper fit for you. And he gives him a wife. Third, we see that in the scriptures that marriage is about family, about procreation, being fruitful and multiply, filling the earth. Fourth, it's about sexuality, being naked and unashamed, becoming one flesh. I would say fifth, because we now live in a fallen world, sex is for your sanctification. Amen? Amen? It is for your spiritual formation. What I mean by that is when you are married, your spouse will bring out the best in you and the worst in you, and you don't need to be alarmed by that. Okay, when I got married to my wife, I was amazed by just how broken I am. I mean at first I tried to play it off like you're the issue. Nobody else has ever told me these things. And then I realized it's because y'all don't care enough about me, right? Like she cares and she's going to bed with me at night and she's not gonna tolerate it. So when that stuff rubs up against each other, right, like like we're gonna have to deal with it. And that's actually a good thing. It's actually a really good thing that your spouse sees all of your crap. Okay. And all of your junk, not in a literal sense, but like, you know what I mean? Like it's a good thing. And so that is a good thing because it actually gives you an opportunity to know what is true about yourself and to submit that before the Lord. And then here's what's beautiful. My wife and I have had some hard times in marriage. We just celebrated though our 10th year as a couple. And, uh, thank you. Yeah, clap for her, not for me. She's had to put up with a lot. So um, we've had some beautiful moments though that she's been right in the center of because what's great about a covenantal relationship is I'm not going into it with the option of maybe something else better will come along one day, but it's I'm committed to you through sickness and health, till death do us part. Like, and I'm going to focus on what's good and beautiful in you, and we're going to partner together with Christ at the center towards a future where one day we'll get to sit together as old people in rocking chairs and spoil our grandkids and all that kind of stuff, right? Like, that's a biblical picture of marriage, your spiritual formation. And then I would say, finally, it's also a signpost. It's a gospel signpost. Your union with your spouse, according to Ephesians 5, is meant to point to the perfect union that we all long for with Christ where we can be fully known, belong, and be loved. Eight, we see this when it comes to the biblical story on divorce. What we learn is that divorce is anything but a clean start in life. Divorce actually ruptures soul ties. It's a breaking of a covenant, a betrayal of trust. It's the hurting of children. It's the death of a marriage. And what I want you to hear today is this. I know we have many who have been divorced. Um, Though the consequences of that will remain, God's grace is sufficient. It's sufficient. All that to say, that is a very different story. It's a story, but it's a very different story, a very different interpretation of what it means to be human and how to handle our sexuality. And I think historically as a church, what we've done is we've tried to swing the pendulum the complete other way of the secular culture. And what we said, the formula that we've given ourselves to is when we've been taught on sexuality is this formula basically of not desires plus consent equals freedom, but moral standards plus willpower equals holiness. And I get the idea behind this, like this idea of like, man, I'm going to be sexually pure. I'm just going to grit my teeth and try really hard to stop looking at pornography. But for those of you who've tried that, you know like that just doesn't work, does it? I remember when I first became a Christian and I sort of following Jesus and I was still struggling with pornography, every time I would lust after somebody or whatever else, I would literally write down those sins on a piece of paper. I remember one time, literally, I'm not making this up, took all those sins, and for some reason I had a Victoria's Secret box in my house. I put all of those sins in the Victoria's Secret box and buried it and was like, I'm putting all those sins to death. I'm wiping my hands clean. And then like the next day I looked at porn again. And so the reality is like moral standards plus willpower does not actually equal more holiness. It equals failure and more shame, and more guilt, and more hopelessness. So the question we have to ask ourselves then is, what is the better formula? And a lot of God's story, that we want to be the overarching narrative in our life, what is the better formula we need to give our lives to? And what I submit to this morning is, it's not desire plus consent. It's not moral standards plus willpower, but it's vision plus power plus practices, and that's what equals restoration. Now, let me just briefly tell you what I mean behind that. You can leave that on the screen. First off, vision. If you want to be sexually pure, if you want to experience the life that is truly life around this area of sexuality, we all need a vision of sexuality that is being shaped more by God than by the culture around us. When Jesus walked on the scene in the Gospel of Mark, He said the following, the kingdom of God has come near. And by the way, the kingdom of God, I know it's kind of ambiguous, but by the kingdom of God, Paul later defined that as basically three things. It's righteousness. So it's you rightly relating to God, yourself and others. It's righteousness, inner peace that cannot be taken away from you and an unshakable joy. So Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come near. Therefore, if you want to experience this righteousness and peace and joy, repent and believe the good news. Now, The word for repent, and please get this, this is a paradigm shifter. The word for repent in the Greek is the word metanoia, which literally can be translated to rethink reality. The word believe that we see in this text, as we talked about last week, is not to nod your head in agreement, but it's to put your entire weight and trust into this new way of thinking that Jesus is ushering in. In light of that, please hear this this morning, Jesus' invitation to you this morning is simply this. It's to rethink what you think you know. And it's to turn from believing the secular story that is being fed to us, whether it be by Oprah or a podcast or our parents or a group of friends, and to put our entire faith and trust in Jesus' vision for human flourishing. That's the invitation today, to ensure that your morality, what you are doing, is flowing out of your anthropology, who you are, and that your anthropology is flowing out of your theology of who God is and what he has done for you in Christ. That is the very first thing that we must do if we want to be formed sexually into the kind of men and women that Christ has called us to be. Secondly, if you go back to that formula, you need vision, but you also need power. Let me tell you some good news. According to Romans chapter 8, if you have given your life to Christ, you have the Spirit of God in you right now. And according to Paul in Romans 8, it's the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwelling in your bodies. So stop believing the lie, I'm just going to always be addicted to this. I'm going to always be walking with this kind of ball and chain. That's just my plot in life. No! That is a lie. You have in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, everything you need now to live the life that God has called you to live. You have the power. But that does not mean that we sit back and say, okay, God, take away the, the, the desire. Okay, God, free me from the addiction. All right, God, do your thing. Like, No, now, right? there's an element to where we actually have to put this stuff into practice. And here's what I mean by that. In 2 Timothy 2.22... The Apostle Paul says, flee evil desires, or one translation says, flee youthful desires and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace in the Lord. Pursue the kingdom of God and notice, do it along with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. If you notice from this verse, just leave that up there for a moment. When you practice the way of Jesus around this area of sexuality, there is a fleeing and a following that you must do. There is a fleeing. You must turn away from things that are causing you to stumble sexually. That may mean rated R movies for some of you that have nudity in it. Wives, when your husband, let me just say this, by the way, this is free. When your wives watch, or your husbands watch a rated R movie and they see nudity, chances are whenever they say, I can see a naked woman and not lust after, it's probably not true. Okay. Just telling you. Maybe in some cases, but not. And so you can help in this as well. We need to flee from things like Rated R movies where there's nudity. We need to flee from, um, you know, putting ourselves in position where there's other things, whether it's through scrolling Facebook or looking at Instagram and masturbating to someone's spring break photos. I mean, we need to be very... Very intentional about making sure that we are not putting ourselves in positions where things are feeding This desire of sexual morality in our lives But there just there doesn't just seem to be a flea, right? Because if I tell you right now, I don't think of chocolate What are you thinking of? Chocolate so there can't just be a fleeing there also has to be a following there can't just be an output There has to be an input of godly life-giving information Right? And, and this is where, for example, like we pursue, as Paul says in here, righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And we do this through the spiritual disciplines. We do this through reading the Bible. We do this through praying. We do this through fasting. And so there's a flee and there's a follow. But then notice, look at this. We put the verse back on the screen. This happens on two different levels. It happens on an individual level and it happens on a communal level. And here's what I mean by that. On an individual level, please hear me. You are the one who has to take responsibility for your sexual purity, not your pastor's not your spouse. You have to take responsibility for it. You are the one who is commanded to do this. You are the one who has to actually go and get covenant eyes and put the $10 in a month to get covenant eyes to put on your computer and your phone to ensure you have the necessary guardrails and roadblocks to keep you from driving off the cliff. You are the one who has to say, you know what? I'm going to actually set my alarm 15 minutes early tomorrow and I'm going to read one psalm. Or I'm going to read the Gospels. All right, you've got to be the one that's going to pray. You have to be the one that's going to do this. You have to be the one who has to actually go back and ask yourself, what is it that's happened in my past that has led me to where I am today? You guys may remember that we talked about in our practicing series last year how you have to go back if you want to go forward. You need to realize, guys, your, sexual, your unwanted sexual behavior is not random but it is the result of an environment and events you have experienced as a child that is leading you still to act out as an adult. Therefore, it's important that you stop and you ask yourself things like this. Did I come from a rigid family where where rules were used as weapons and my parents were happy as long as I was compliant, but as soon as I screwed up, there was hell to pay. You have to ask yourself questions like, did I come from an emotionally disengaged family? I had a great family, but middle school was hell for me. And not once do I remember my parents looking at me and saying, "You look like you're not doing too well. Can you tell me did anything happen at school today?" Like not once. And they were a great family, but unlike I think, or like a lot of families, like there's there's a temptation I think for some of us, right? Or or we grew up in homes where it became more about cleaning the house or work, and then about emotionally engaging our kids, talking about their anger or their sorrow, what was going on in their heart. So ask yourself, did I come from an emotionally disengaged family? Did I experience abuse as a kid? Was I exposed to porn early on? Kind of like in my story from a neighbor or a relative, right? Did I grow up in a home where there was divorce, right? What was it about the past that got me to where I am? And then another question you have to ask yourself as an individual is what is keeping me here? Like, what is it about porn or about engaging or hooking up with someone? What is is it giving me that I feel like I have to have in order to be happy? These are all questions you have to, as an individual, wrestle with. But then notice in this passage, right? as you're working this out, as you're practicing the way of Jesus, you do this not only on an individual level, but also on a communal level. Paul says that you are to pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. This is huge. Because the reality is the fight for sexual purity cannot be won in isolation. It's impossible. Which is why I think one of Satan's greatest tactics is to convince you that you are a monster. Nobody would understand. You've been a Christian for how long? Yeah, you're different. You're unique. Nobody knows your situation, and I would not tell anybody about it, or you're going to be shunned. You're going to be rejected. That's the message from the enemy to sit in the darkness and to let your sin absolutely grow and consume you until it's too late. And if that's where you are this morning, listen the call from Jesus is simply to be vulnerable, to step into the light to stop giving a 99% confession in your DNA that's vague and general and carries no weight, and to start giving a 100% full, clean confession in a culture of gospel plus safety plus time where others can help you work through this so that you can experience the life that you are longing for. All that being said, maybe for some of you, you sit here and you say, and that all sounds really good, but you have no idea what I've gone through. You have no idea what I've done. My spouse don't know. My parents don't know. My best friends don't know. Maybe for some of you, you're sitting here right now, and you are so disgusted by your sexual sin. Maybe there's images that the enemy, as I've been talking have been bringing to your mind, and you sit here and you feel like such a sexual failure. And I want you to know if that's where you are. The good news is is after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, you want to know who the gospel moved forward to and who we see being converted by the early church? It was a lot of people who literally were having sex with prostitutes as a form of worship. The people who were being converted and having their lives changed were not the morally upright people who looked like those in the 1950s in America. But it was the genuine sinners with the horrific sexual past. They were the ones who were being redeemed and washed clean and made new. That being said, please hear me. I don't know what you have done, but I know this. God can handle your sexual failure. If you'll bring it to the light. I think about the woman at the well who had... Five different husbands. She was sleeping with one who wasn't even her husband. Jesus goes to her. He doesn't condemn her. He just says, "How hey, you want living water? You want true satisfaction and fulfillment? It's not found in these men. It's found in me. I think about the woman who was caught in adultery as all these religious men were coming and trying to condemn this woman and gang up on her. Jesus walks on the scene and he drives a wedge of compassion between this woman and the religious men. Rather than Jesus condemning her, he shows her compassion, and that's what he wants to do to you today. So that in Him, if you will step into the light, you can finally find the forgiveness and the freedom and the fulfillment that you are longing for. To end this morning, I want to share with you a picture of a kintsugi bowl, which I have one in my house, thanks to Miss Christy Eubanks, who made one for our family. And I thought this was a beautiful picture of what God does for those who have experienced sexual brokenness. Here's what I read this week about the Kintsugi. It says, Though the general Western consensus on broken objects is that they have lost their value. So if you think about it, you drop a plate at your house, what do you do with it? And it breaks, you sweep it up, you throw it away. But the Kintsugi method conveys a philosophy not of replacement, but of awe and reverence and restoration. The gold-filled cracks... Of a once broken item, reveal the beauty and the importance one sees when looking at the restored dish. I want you just look at these next pictures. I think I put on the screen. Look how beautiful these images are. And what I want you to realize today is, if you have bought into the broken secular story that has broken your life sexually, this is what Jesus wants to now do in your life. Some of you in here, you feel that you have been broken beyond repair, and that's a lie. Jesus is a master of taking broken things and making them beautiful. The place you hate yourself the most right now, that you're most embarrassed by, that's the place that God's grace and mercy will flow into your life if you will just be honest before him. And if you don't believe that, by the way, just look around, because the church is just basically a kintsugi people. That's all we are. That's all we are. You are surrounded by people right now who have been broken incredibly by incredibly perverted sexual past. I'm one of them. I'm one of them. And the truth is, Jesus wants to meet you wherever you are, and his promise to you is that he will redeem you, he will forgive you, he will restore you. He will make you new. This is just what he does. Amen. And it can be your story. Jean Venier says this, we all have to choose between two ways of being crazy. We're all crazy, right? Let me just be honest. We all have to choose between two ways of being crazy. The foolishness of the gospel or the nonsense of the values of our world. There is no neutrality. I'm done this morning, but please hear this. You are believing a story. You understand? Like you are putting your faith in someone or something. And the question question therefore is, who or what are you putting your faith in? What is the story that you're going to choose to believe? Because you can either be deformed by the secular stories or you can be reformed by the scandalous love of Jesus Christ. And I pray that that will be our story. I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes for a moment as the band comes forward. And again, never for the sake of trying to build emotion or manipulate you, but it's just easy to get distracted. And I want to encourage you right now, a lot of this message, just to submit your heart before Jesus, who is compassionate and kind, and just, I want you to feel his tender care for you. And if you have a part of you right now that is trying to shame you, that is trying to beat you up, that is trying to make you feel guilty, that is trying to, embarrass you, if there's a part of you even right now that you're getting angry at your sexual, your sexual deviance and you're wanting to kind of shame yourself, I want to encourage you just to push that part of you aside and to invite the compassion of Jesus Christ into your heart. He does not want to come and beat you up with a stick. He has gone to the cross Because of sexual sinners. And at the cross, he literally became sin. Your sin, a sexual sin, so that in him you could become the righteousness of God.